Why settle for just living a good life? When you can live a life optimized to achieve your human potential, learn all the hacks that will transform your life from average to extraordinary. Welcome to Life Optimized with functional medicine expert, Dr. Neil Palvin. So welcome to another episode of the Life Optimized podcast. I'm Dr. Neil Palvin. Uh, just you can follow us on all social media at Life Optimized Pod and follow us on our YouTube channel well under Dr. Palvin. This podcast is helps you optimize your health, lifestyle, mind, and business. And today we have a really great guest in house in a really cool episode. We're with Jonah Rosner of JR Performance. He is a sports scientist and opt, health op, sports optimization yep. provider. He is was one of the youngest ever to be in professional sports at 25. Yep. He was last with the Houston Texans. And he treats many athletes from the weekend warrior to Olympic and professional athletes. So thanks, Jonah, for coming on. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. I'm excited. And we're going to do what we're going to do today is Jonah could talk. I could let Jonah talk for an hour and a half on this stuff and just sit here and be, and then you'd learn so much. We're going to try to do today is get some of the, some, the basics down first. And then what we're going to do throughout the rest of the podcast is try to do a deeper dive to explain to anybody who's never done a VO2 max test or ever had a sports training evaluation, what they should be getting out of it, what they need to know. And then for the people who really want to go down the nitty gritty, we'll go into how to improve your VO2 max, which I'm sure maybe one of the questions you get asked yep. probably more than anything now, because yeah. that's like, I could, I've just hundreds of blogs on it. And we're going to do is kind of more recovery things at the end. So again, we're going to kind of start with the basics. So for the weekend warrior, for someone who's not a pro athlete, what should they be starting with? What is their goals in, in terms of do they need to be doing everything? Is it just wear the aura ring? Should they be doing a VO2 max test? Let's start with some basics there. Yeah, I think just for the general population, I mean, first of all, we have to meet you where you're at, right? Like the big thing is you have to make sure it's a program or a protocol you can hold consistently. We know that one of the biggest things for exercise change or to create physiological adaptation is consistency. But if you're asking me for a weekend warrior, if their overall goal is just health, performance, I would say just a little bit of everything is going to help. And when I say a little bit of everything, I mean a combination of something like weights and cardio, because we know that each of those uh, training stimulus are going to have different adaptations. And each one of those adaptations are going to create positive effects for overall health, longevity, performance. So for example, when we lift weights, we know that that's going to be a better stimulus, especially heavier weights to get stronger. We know strength is going to be related to longevity over time or things, even some of the lighter weights are going to make you stronger. Then these are also going to lead to like muscle power adaptations, muscle size adaptations. And as I know you've spoken about like things like lean muscle mass are really important for overall longevity. We know muscle mass can help with preservation over time. And there's a huge metabolic health component associated with it. But at the same time, we know that some of the cardiovascular adaptations that we can get are going to be really important for longevity. And those are going to be more related to like some of that conditioning related protocols. And that could be things like an easy longer run, an easy longer bike ride. And that's going to help with some of our aerobic adaptations or that ability to utilize oxygen. And then some high intensity sessions as well to really help with overall just ability like the VO2 max kind of stimulus. So I think my advice to just like an overall weekend warrior is you got to start somewhere and you have to start with something that's realistic, whether it's a few days a week or as many times a week as possible, and just to mix it up. I think each exercise regime is going to give you, whether it's weight or conditioning, different adaptations, and all of those adaptations are going to be really positive for overall health. So let's break it down piece by piece. I, get, I know I get asked this, and you probably do as well, is so first, how many times a week, or is it minutes is probably even easier, of weight or resistance training? And then how many minutes do you... Recommend does everybody have to be focusing on zone two, which gets more and more popular? Let's start there and then we'll kind of build. Yeah. I mean, I think if we're going to break down each piece by piece, for example, weights, I typically have someone who's coming to me for like overall health or longevity. The weights we start at is usually two to three times per week. I really like three times per week, if I'm being honest, for the weight standpoint. And that's mainly to get increases in strength and muscle size, which we know are both important for longevity. Um, the zone two, again, when someone first comes to me to start, it looks a little different than when they've been training with me for a while because we like to make progress over time. We know that's a really important part of exercise science, progressive overload, that when someone starts with something, they're going to adapt it very easily at first if they haven't done it before. But to increase the adaptation, we have to give them more load or more stimulus, more exercise over time of that. 
So when someone first comes to me for like a zone two product, I usually recommend like three times per week. We start around a half an hour to 40 minutes. So anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours. And then we typically try to get them all the way up to three hours per week of like some of that zone two stuff. And I do think that most people should be doing that zone two stuff, whether you're, again, it depends on your athlete or your sport, but definitely any just like weekend warrior or general population, they're going to get a lot of benefits from that zone two stuff. It's going to allow us to get a lot of those cardiovascular or physiological adaptations related to your aerobic system, which we know is really important for heart health. It's going to help you recover. There's a lot of positive psychological effects. And also it doesn't come with a lot of fatigue. So one of the main things we want to do when we have an exercise program is make sure we give someone a stimulus to create adaptation without access fatigue because if we create too little, too much fatigue, they're not going to be able to continue the exercise plan. So zone two is a really good way to create like adaptations without a lot of fatigue. So yeah, most people who come to me, I do recommend a good amount of zone two if, if their goal is overall health and performance. And we typically maintain that throughout the exercise program. So um, let me try to explain zone two and I'll have Jonah really give his expert opinion here because I always, what is zone two? Because people don't know. So I mean, the simple answer, at least what I tell people, is zone two, you should be able to solve a conversation, be a yeah. little winded, but able to have a conversation with it. I mean, again, as you mentioned, it helps with mitochondria, helps with heart health, it may help with longevity. Yeah. There's some studies, there's no definitive, from what I've seen, there's no definitive studies regarding longevity. So how do you explain why somebody should not be working out maximal by doing a zone two? What do you tell your clients? Yeah, no, it, it's an excellent question. Um, so... First of all, the way we typically design define zone two, like you said, the talk test is a really practical one for an individual to say, oh, can I do the, hold this pace while I can talk easily? But if we're going to go to like the nitty gritty science, which is like, how do I actually divide, define zone two? Zone two is that first marker of like when we're exercising, where we increase our intensity, that we start burning more carbohydrates versus fat for fuel. And so when we're exercising at a very easy intensity, we can mostly utilize fat as a fuel source. We combust fat for a fuel source. But then as we increase our exercise intensity, we know we have to start burning carbohydrates because carbohydrates are they're, they're a more efficient fuel source, but we can also utilize them faster. So as intensity goes higher, we have less time to create energy. We need to utilize the carbohydrates essentially. So zone two is defined, the ceiling of zone two, as that first increase of carbohydrate utilization. And that typically shows up as increased lactate in the blood. Because as we burn more carbohydrates, we're going to produce more lactate. So typically the way we measure like your ceiling of your zone two is essentially by saying the first rise in blood lactate in the blood from baseline or two millimoles per liter in the blood is another way. And yeah, like you said, I think um, it's important that we do a lot of exercise in zone two and create those adaptations without going too hard because there is a lot of research that, for example, like you talk about mitochondria, overall how many mitochondria we have, a key stimulus to increase mitochondria is overall training volume at some of these easier intensities and we know mitochondria like quality and density is related to our overall lifespan like we do have some good research about that linking mitochondria to like disease mitochondria health so i think um for example this long some of this easier longer zone two training is going to allow us to get a lot of volume easy volume which we know is a key stimulus for things like mitochondria health mitochondria density and it's also going to create some positive like aerobic cardiovascular adaptations as well and if we go too hard sometimes the issue is you go so hard you just can't accumulate the volume or like the training volume stimulus that's going to help with the mitochondria adaptations you're just going to get so fatigued you can't keep it up we're going to talk more about – Jonah mentioned another buzzword as we're recording it now is lactate thresholds. Yeah. Some people are out there just trying to prick their finger on their treadmill, which is could leave like look like a horror movie as we're coming up on Halloween when we're filming this. But we're going to go more into that. That's usually done either individually. You can do it doing a VO2 max test, which we'll be talking about in a little bit. But that's something – again, There's with a lot of these things, there's a simple way of looking at it. Or, but there's a lot of data behind it that backs everything up. And that's why you have Jonah on helping everybody kind of understand, the, kind of put the two together here. So, so back, so in terms of, again, in terms of basic training, so for the person who maybe has like two hours a week to train, should, it should be a mix of resistance and zone and cardio and again, trying to find that happy and probably working with a trainer helps to figure out what's going to work yeah. best based on their numbers, which we'll get into a little bit. Yeah, I would say that if you have, for example, two hours to train, I would do a combination of some weights, maybe like one to two times a week of weights and then cardiovascular. And 
I would still try to put in a session of that easier zone two training, but also some of that high intensity cardiovascular other conditioning training as well, because there is some good research about some of the adaptations we get from the high intensity conditioning related to VO2 max and some other markers that are important for overall health. So yeah, a little just a combination of all of those, but just reduce the volume of all of them. And then when you, <clears throat> again, I want to make sure that the terms laid out there. So for you, when you say high intensity training, what does that mean? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, so just how there's a way we can define zone two training, there's other training zones too. Typically people use like three or five zone training models and that can help us define what high intensity training is. So we have that first threshold we talked about, which is when we see the first rise in lactate in the blood, which represents when you burn more carbohydrates, but there's actually an other threshold that occurs later on. And that's when we exercise at an even higher intensity. And essentially all this threshold does, it, you can think of it as the anaerobic threshold or the second lactate threshold. This threshold is pretty much just, we're trying to show the difference or create a marker for exercise we can sustain for a long period of time and exercise we can't sustain for a long term period of time. We call it like the exercise metabolic steady state marker essentially. And what that marker represents is when lactate rises in the blood at a faster rate than we can actually handle or a faster rate we can reutilize lactate because lactate's actually a very good fuel source for us. So we actually recycle lactate. But at some point we work at an intensity where we start burning so many carbohydrates and we start exercising so fast that we just create some of these metabolic byproducts that create acidity in the muscle that we just can't deal with and we have to stop exercising. So the way I and most of the common exercise science literature defines high intensity exercise now is when you're exercising at a point past that second threshold. So it's exercise you can't sustain for a long period of time. And we usually say you can't sustain it for more than like 20 minutes is the sustainable rate. And so typically for those type of interval sessions, you're exercising there for four to six minutes. And that's the high intensity training stimulus. You take like a four to four minute break you repeat, that's a very good VO2 max stimulus, but that also is what we define as a high intensity stimulus. So just to summarize, like a high intensity session for me is past this threshold that represents this marker of exercise we can sustain for 20 minutes or exercise we can't sustain for 20 minutes. That There we go. Yeah, so we have to simplify it. And then you mentioned a couple of things and I, got, I was gonna bring it up later, but let's do it. We can definitely talk about it now. So lactate for years has been viewed as the yeah. devil, bad, <laughs> you know, you're in don't want to, you don't want it. And now we, again, there's a lot of studies both in a sports performance world as well as health-wise that lactate actually may be beneficial to some degree. And then now we're able to do now through sensors that he has in his lab as well as other people, you can actually measure where yep. your body is, is starting to produce more and more lactate. Your body does need some. So explain, my other, so should people be afraid of when the no. lactate perform? And also- <laughs> What is your view? And it's become it went away for a while. It seems it came back. At least with my patients, is now people are using a lot more acid about sodium hydroxide and trying to keep down the acid production. I know it's it's not something you can maintain to do in perpetuity. So yeah. kind of talk about lactate as to have the kind of things have changed in perspective on it. Yeah. So this research was done by George Brooks with the lactate shutter theory. He was kind of like um, a legend of the exercise physiology field and. He showed that lactate is actually a good thing in exercise physiology. And I think the stigma that lactate is bad is actually one of the biggest myths in exercise physiology. And we have this thought that lactate is like this lactate acid that causes us like the muscle burning sensation that causes us to stop exercising. And we know that's just not true. So essentially lactate is actually a good thing because when our muscle burns carbohydrates as fuel, which it's gonna naturally do at intense exercise, we do create lactate as part of that byproduct. But what we know now is that that lactate can actually go back in the muscle and be utilized by the mitochondria or by the muscle again for energy. So it's actually a really good fuel source and it can actually travel to other organs like the heart, the brain, all these other organs and be utilized as a fuel source. So lactate actually isn't a bad thing. Lactate will actually allow you to exercise for longer at a high intensity because it could be recycled as energy. But when we do produce lactate, we also produce some other metabolic byproducts, including things like hydrogen ions, inorganic phosphates. And these hydrogen ions that come with um, lactate, those are actually the things that are causing fatigue. They cause your muscle to get more acidic, the blood to become more acidic, and that's gonna be the reason we get that muscle burn and we have to stop exercising. Um, and then regards like the latter point, the sodium related stuff. So a really interesting supplement that's in exercise science now is sodium bicarbonate. And the whole point of like bicarb as they call it is to help buffer the hydrogen ions. So it attaches to the hydrogen ions to help with that acidity. 
And we do have some pretty good research that that helps with um, exercise at a high intensity. But again, like the other thing, the sodium, remind me, G. I mean, yeah, sodium bicarb. Yeah. yeah, sodium bicarb, same thing. I think I misspoke. So, so, yeah. But um, so from an overall, like when you're exercising at an intense level, it can definitely have positive effects. In terms of other exercise prescription, like lower intensity stuff, we're just not as sure right now. now that's the that's holy grail. I mean... Again, you could have a whole on Instagram. All these people, again, there's great people out there. And I'm, I'm yeah. gonna get your Rex at the end about all these things that people say boost ath- athletic performance. When you actually look for data, I think there's like three. I think it's what nitric oxide, essentially nitric some form of nitric oxide, yeah, I mean, creatine. creatine, and maybe one other thing that's actually been proven to actually, pref- yeah. especially sh- um, short burst athletic performance. I know long term, I think there's a couple of things that may yeah. be out there. We'll get into it in a little bit, but it's just, it's amazing. So. Going back to what we were talking about, so somebody who wants to be athletically fit, wants to boost longevity, it sounds like they should get at least a VO2 max test to get some of these levels to see where they are. Um, so let's kind of let's break right into it. So everybody now, a lot of people are hearing about VO2 max, be it from Piratia or athletes or people look really cool in their little masks on social media. Um, so what is a VO2 max test, what's entailed, and then we'll kind of do a deeper dive. So I guess just the first thing to do is define VO2 max. And so VO2 max simply represents the maximum rate of oxygen our body can consume and utilize. And that's determined by two things, which is how much blood and oxygen our heart can pump to the muscle, and then how efficient our muscle is at utilizing that oxygen, just to break it down. And VO2 max actually represents quite a high exercise intensity, if we think about it. So the way you find VO2 max is, like you alluded to, you wear some kind of gas exchange max, which measures oxygen you breathe in and the carbon dioxide you breathe out. And But we typically mostly just need the oxygen part of that. And what you do is you exercise at a low intensity to start. And like every minute or every few minutes, you increase the exercise intensity or, for example, the speed on the treadmill or how fast you're pedaling on the bike or your overall power on the bike to a point where you can't really hold that exercise intensity for a minute anymore. And once you get to that point, that will be your maximum rate of oxygen consumption at that mo- that that maximum exercise output. And whenever your oxygen reading is at that maximum intensity is your VO2 max. So essentially, it represents just that hard intensity. What's the maximum amount of oxygen my body can take in? And it's important because it is what we consider now the gold standard for cardiorespiratory fitness. It will essentially tell us like how much work or like how efficient our heart and all these like different cardiovascular related uh, systems and metabolic systems are at taking in oxygen and utilizing it, which we know is really important for our health and performance. And then everybody, again, that's, I, I always really think the social media, unfortunately, my, from the way I do things, but now everybody sees those charts. Yeah. Those ch- now I assume, again, I just tested it with you and I was pretty close to where I am for my age. Yeah. So first of all, there's definitely you have to explain the categories for age, and then what my I know you treat everybody from me to again Olympic athletes. My, what my VO two max is is not what an Olympic sprinter or Olympic marathoner should be. So that's deep into what everyone. I want one of my numbers. My number one on the scoreboard has become yeah. almost competitive at this point. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's really important where um, we look at VO2 max numbers. It's important to compare based on normative data because I'm, as I know you've mentioned before, we have good research that shows when someone's in a certain percentile relative to the norm, that is going to help with overall lifespan and longevity in terms of like all cause mortality risk factors. But it's important to compare to your specific demographic. Like if you're an Olympic sprinter, Olympic marathoner, or mostly an Olympic marathoner, probably not as much a sprinter, we know having a high VO2 max is going to be really important for your performance. But if you're just like an everyday weekend warrior, as we've been talking about, we know that you probably want to compare to your population just to make sure because compared to an Olympic marathoner, you're, you're going to be in the zero, zero percentile. Yeah. So as we mentioned, you've tra- you were in the professional ranks for seven years. So where, were you always with the Texans or you went uh, football? So I worked um, in football. I worked a little bit of professional soccer, college basketball. So most of them at this point. And so how does that, how does that, how'd you get into that realm? I mean, again, you, you were the, one of the youngest ever to do it. Again, you always call yourself, hey, I got really into this young. So how did you end up into that? We were a profess- we high school level, high level high school yeah. athlete or where did how'd you get No, there? I think it's probably because I wasn't a high level athlete. And essentially what happened is I needed to say, well, 
I'm not too athletic, so what can I do to help with my athleticism? And my mom was a dietitian, so I was always very interested in like health and wellness. So I essentially just started like exploring like, hey, how can I make myself a better athlete? Started exercising, reading like different magazines, training articles. I definitely, looking back now, wasn't doing what was correct, but got super interested in it and started training myself and realized I really had a passion for it. And then when I got to college, I was originally supposed to do like economics and data science and then kind of just switched, started doing internships and straight to conditioning fell in love with it. And I think I, yeah, I, a lot of it was I got fortunate to make good connections when I was young and people who then got into good positions and were willing to hire me and give me chances. So yeah, I think I just got there. I was fortunate to make a lot of the good connection, good connections when I was younger. And then also just have those opportunities presented to me, which is really cool. But then yeah, then I got super interested in the research, I think mostly because of I wanted to know how to boost my own performance. And then once I found some more of the research, I got really interested in just the idea of how we create like overall, like using science to really innovate performance in someone's health. And then you decided to leave professional sports a little bit behind and come home, correct? Yeah, it was a nice change of pace. Um, like I think pro sports was really fun and it gave me opportunities and resources that I just wouldn't get anywhere else. But at the same time, I think there is a huge opportunity now to apply a lot of the lessons and technology we have in pro sports just to anyone. And I think it's really cool just to be part of that in the general population now because it's such an innovative field. And we were discussing before we came on that there's right now probably more than ever, which is great, is that people have all this data or want the data. They're not sure, again, like we were talking, do I need to get this data? How do I use the data? Or they have all this data, again, or they have the data and they have no idea what to do with it. And you do a really good job of, again, putting the, okay, you need to get this done and this is yeah. what, you need. and this is, the key is always, how do I use this data to get better, be healthy, be better in sports? It's not just looking at a number like it's a, a, a stock on the stock exchange. We're just watching it go up and down. You want to be able to use it in the right way. And so we talked about VO2 max. You're saying we want to use the, the data the right way. So the question, probably the question on the podcast, are there two or three things that I can do to boost VO2 max to get it to that next level no matter what my goals are? Yeah, it's a good, really good question. And I think if we're looking at something like VO2 max, which is a cardiorespiratory fitness uh, marker, the type of training that's going to be most potent for that is things related to conditioning, right? Like some running, cycling. And we know that different forms of conditioning, as we've talked about earlier, like zone two versus high intensity are going to affect VO2 max differently. So if we look at the latest research, we know that the most important factor to improving VO2 max is to spend time at a training intensity close to VO2 max, or essentially training hard enough that I'm going to be having to breathe in enough oxygen that my oxygen response is close to my VO2 max. So what does that look like in practice? It means we have to do that high intensity training, because as we talked about earlier, VO2 max represents a high intensity output. So typically, like we have some research that shows the most potent VO2 max stimulus is one that takes place above that second threshold. And it's a four minute on protocol. So let's say I'm on a bike, I'm going to exercise as hard as I can on that bike for four minutes all out by the end, I should pretty much be exhausted. I'm going to rest for four minutes. I'm going to repeat another four minute bout. And then I'm going to rest four minutes again. And in total, you do four to five sets of that four minutes on four minutes off. But it's really important to know that set that four minutes on is that at all out intensity. And we see from the research that that is going to cause an oxygen consumption response that's going to put us at about like 90 to 100 percent of our vo2 max and that's going to lead to the greatest improvements at vo2 max so that's going to be the most potent way when you're first getting into exercise um, most conditioning is going to improve your vo2 max just because when someone first starts something physiologically they tend to respond so even some of the easier training will help improve vo2 max as well but if we want to know what the best stimulus is to improve it the fastest it would be that high intensity four on four off protocol and something just came out and i want to get your opinion on it uh, about altitude training and potentially being able to boost VO2 max. I mean, we're in New York. There's not much altitude unless you go in the middle of Central Park yeah. or go up to the mountains. So, But is that something that, that has some validity to it? Can you yeah. duplicate it? Or is it, okay, I'm going to Colorado now to, and it's, do that? Yeah, I mean, I think we see a lot of artificial altitude products now, which I think are interesting. Um, I think it's going to be hard to duplicate here. And so... Altitude training from a VO2 max standpoint, if we spend a longer time at altitude living there, we know and training there or whatever, after about like four to five weeks, we get increases in hemoglobin and hemoglobin are what carry oxygen to the muscles. They're like the oxygen delivery system. And we know that increasing hemoglobin is probably going to have a positive effect on VO2 max because it kind of increases the machinery for that oxygen delivery, which is a mechanistic component of VO2 max. So yeah, altitude training definitely could increase VO2 max. 
but it's going to be really hard to do unless you're living at altitude or you're having one of these potentially like artificial altitude rooms or ways to create it. And you're being, you're spending at least like four to five weeks there. Because once you go there, if you're just spending like 10 days, you're not going to get a lot of like these hemoglobin adaptations. And once you're there, and then if you do come back, we actually do see that it tends to go away in about two to three weeks. So you have to be there for longer periods of time. That is my question. Okay. So I'm moving to Colorado. Yeah. Okay, there we go. A, me too. I love Colorado. There you go. I'm a, so, and then are there supplements that can artificial, I guess, I guess we say artificially or help to supplement or boost VO2 max, which really you got to put the freaking work in and just do it. I mean, yeah, like some of the supplements you said earlier could potentially increase VO2 max. Like you said, nitrates, like what do nitrates do? They're vasodilators. They're going to increase blood flow to the muscle. Muscle That could potentially be, uh, enhance VO2 max. But I think we see from the literature, like the best way to increase VO2 max is exercise. Sorry, folks. You got to. You got to do the work. <laughs> you got to put the work in yeah. and the hard work. And he exactly. wants me. He wants me to go on the aerodyne bike, which is probably the, the bane of my workout existence. Yeah. I'll do anything else, but I'm gonna. I've been doing it just because I have his little voice in my head, uh, yelling at me. Uh, anyway, so when people get a VO two max, we went through that. The other part that a lot of people ask about and probably doesn't get any publicity is the RMR, the resting metabolic mm -hmm. rate. So is that something again? Everybody should do. What, what's it all about? Yeah, I think the resting metabolic rate, essentially just to sum it down and make it really simple, a resting metabolic rate test, you're going to wear that oxygen consumption max, it's going to record your oxygen, your carbon dioxide, and that's going to tell us how many calories you burn at rest. And from that, we can get a good idea of your caloric expenditure or how many calories you would burn out a day if you weren't active at all. So by combining that with like an assumption of how active you are, we can get an idea of how many calories you would burn in the day. And so who would that be important for? That probably would be important for high-level athletes so we can teach them how to fuel correctly or consume enough calories to support their training, whether in endurance or team sport. And it definitely can be potentially useful for individuals who are having a hard time losing weight or gaining weight if they're trying to put on muscle because it can just give you a really objective way to say, okay, right now I'm not losing weight or fat. And we know to lose weight, you have to consume less calories than you're burning. So that way, if you have a good marker of how many calories you burn in a day, you can make sure you're eating a little bit less than that. So you actually lose weight over time or vice versa if you're trying to gain muscle or trying to gain weight. But I think if someone's just getting started and they're not really having any trouble with weight maintenance, weight loss, or weight gain, then I don't know how necessary it would be. A lot of it you could be just, just do subjectively. There's some pretty good research behind. All right, cool. And then one thing, make sure if you are going to get the RMR, again, is make sure with it, no caffeine for how long? Yeah, you don't want to be caffeinated beforehand, obviously, because that's going to increase heart rate, your, me your me metabolic rate. So I would just don't try to do it in the morning. So that way you don't have caffeine that morning and try not to eat before. And then- Trying to get all the structure that answer all these questions, I can just point to this one podcast. Yeah. So, how often should a, a moderate level athlete be checking their VO two max every six months, once a year? Yeah, I think if you're just like a non endurance individual, just a regular athlete or a regular weekend warrior, I would say every six months is fine. We know that these adaptations take time. And then, should everybody expect a decent percentage change in six months if they're putting in the work? I think if you're putting in the work for that high intensity protocol we talked about or other high intensity protocols, you will see significant changes over time, especially if you're new to that training, especially in six months, yes. So we t so data is important. We've gone through the data part. And now we're going to talk about something that's also important no matter if you're a weekend warrior or a lead athlete is mechanics and gait structure and yeah. just and, and making sure your body is working. The weights are great. The technology is good. But yeah. if you're not doing the sport the right way, you're just not going to perform and you're going to lead to injury and so on down. I mean, you just go down the rabbit hole. So same, I know you put me through some testing. So yeah. every, I think in my opinion, every, every athlete should have some type of biomechanical testing done, be it from 20 to 70, no matter what level, because there's so many different pieces yeah. to that. So when an athlete comes to you, no matter who they are, what are you looking at them biomechanically and then go from there? Yeah, no, I mean, I think just to address your first point, um, you brought up something like any athlete, like there's a lot of factors that go into athleticism. So the way I try to approach it, I look at like the biomechanics, but also like some of the metabolic stuff we talked about earlier, because it's really hard to separate those. And performance, there's a lot of things that go into it. It's complex. So by creating like, by recording like biomechanics and some of the conditioning stuff as well, we get a holistic athlete picture so we know exactly what they need to work on. So from a biomechanics standpoint, for example, we can look at a runner since that's where I've been working a lot work recently. A lot of runners will come to see me and biomechanically, I put some insoles in their shoes and those are smart insoles with like pressure mapping and 
some other devices in there. So that way we can look at how their left and right leg function when they run. We can look at things like how much time they spend on the ground, how much force they put into the ground when they run, and how far each step is. So essentially how good each each one of their legs is, is at pushing them forward, which is important in running. And so that information can offer a lot of value because first of all, it can show us asymmetry, right? Like let's say someone had an injury historically, like they tore their left ACL, and they thought that they're healed, but they're still having some issues. We can potentially use that objective feedback to say, okay, you had this injury a few years ago, but you never fully got back to where you were moving the same way. And we see that now because you're not using your left leg. So now with that objective information, we could do a protocol to say, let's work on your left leg in the weight room or through other modalities to get it back working again. And that can help you with overall running. And then just the other thing that we can do with the biomechanics is we can look at like something like an overall running strategy, which we know is really important. Where although there's probably no exactly right way to run, we do know that, for example, if your goal is performance, that there's certain characteristics in regards to like how many steps per minute you take, the way you interact with the ground that are important if your goal is to run as fast as possible for a marathon, for example. And this, these information sources can give us metrics that record that or give us metrics that are related to that. And so that way we can know maybe we need to work on how, how many steps you take per minute, how much force you're putting into the ground with each step. And so that can offer some objective information from that. And then also it definitely influences just like the way I program in the weight room. So like, let's say, oh, this individual isn't too good at the way, again, they produce force in the ground. Maybe we just need to get them stronger in the weight room. So definitely can offer a lot of objective information from that standpoint. And I think one of the most useful ways you can incorporate is like injuries. If someone's coming back from an injury, looking at the symmetry and the way they run. So we could give some objective information about them needed to do some single leg stuff or work on um, an injured limb. Yeah, and I mean, gait, new stuff's come out that, I mean, gait length and is maybe associated now with longevity as well, besides injury and performance. So, yeah. a lot, again, it's amazing how five years ago nobody was talking about this stuff. I mean, probably Peter Atia at this point. And now it, everything kind of was great. Now everything kind of links up. There's links with sport performance, how healthy yeah. you are, hopefully limiting arthritis and injuries, and then longevity. So, it just snowballs on yourself. So, yeah. the point is, again, do ex please exercise. Yeah. It, it's, it's the easiest way to achieve help with a lot of health issues. Yeah. And then, like you said, so that you're going to develop them a specific program, again, depending what their sports yeah. goals are and, again, what you're finding, again, if they're weakest. Um, and then what's the next step after? I, just, it's just, I assume it's just a continual program in terms yeah, of – Yeah, so it's essentially um, we like to do initial testing. I like to know those strengths or weaknesses, create a profile, and then, yeah, that information's helpful, but it's not helpful if you don't actually act upon it. So one of the ways I try to offer value is I design a very individualized training program based on the results. So we give you a stimulus, just like if someone comes to you or they go to a doctor, it's like, okay, here's your blood work. It's like, okay, here's what's the sickness. Let's give you a medication to start to get you to feel better. So then essentially I give them a stimulus. The medication in this sense is an exercise program. And then after they do that, for example, four to six weeks, we retest based on our desired goals of the program. So we do all the same testing. We say, oh, look, we gave you the goal of this training block was to improve your VO2 max, for example, or to increase your muscle mass. So maybe they got a DEXA scan too. They came back in whatever, a few months and we say, oh, your VO2 max got better, which was a goal of the training program and your muscle mass went up. The training program worked. We know we're heading in the right direction. Let's continue with that stimulus. So maybe they came in and one of the goals wasn't met. Like your muscle mass didn't go up. Okay, now we need to look at the training program, audit it, give you a slightly different stimulus to make sure we, again, are just recorrecting to head in the right direction, essentially. So it's kind of trying to take some of the guesswork out of exercise prescription. And that, and what you showed me in terms of like, especially like single leg things and the insole, it just, again, takes things to the next level because you can just mix and match Again, are my shoes, where's my foot strike? It's just amazing exactly. now. Again, and this is something that, again, used to be just used for high-end athletes. And now what I like what you're doing is that you're bringing, trying to bring it down so, the, the again, the non-elite athlete can use yeah. it and use it to, to help themselves healthy. And you said something to me in one of our in interactions. I just want to bring it up because it's one of my biggest pet peeves. So when people – explain to people if it's even true. When somebody says, like, your glute's not firing, <laughs> not firing and that's why you have back pain or yeah. that's why you're not performing as well, is that – how should somebody take that when somebody says that to them? 
Um, I think anyone who speaks to you like in extremes of that standpoint, I would be skeptical of. Um, I think pain itself, for example, is really complex. Like there's like a psychological component to pain, a biomechanical component. But if we look at that specific example that I sent you, like when someone says your glutes are off, or they're not firing. We know from a physiological standpoint, that's impossible. If your glutes were really off and like you didn't have a connection to your glutes at all, that, that would be really bad. And it's impossible. You still have nerves that go to your glute and your glutes are always slightly activated. Um, I think essentially what they mean is that their assumption is that your glutes maybe are, are weaker or your glutes, the way the muscles are activating is a way that could be causing pain. And I really don't even think we could say that that's potentially true. I think that pain is like a relatively complex thing and that over time there's different ways that we can potentially attack it. And by creating like a holistic approach, by addressing all the potential elements of pain, whether that's sleep, nutrition, also exercise prescription, that's going to give you your best bet for getting out of pain. And I think like a lot of times these claims that a one-size-fits-all issue, for example, your glutes are off, is the sole reason of your pain. It's just, it's really hard from an exercise science standpoint or just like pain research to make that claim. And your glutes probably are not off. They're definitely on. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. Um, but you, you, again, you brought up something else I, that I wanted to discuss in a little bit is, again, we now know, again, because some of the testing you're doing and yeah. just hands-on evaluation, that it may be you may have weakness in one muscle or one yeah. muscle group. And a lot of kind of gadgets have come out there now, again, either from through traditional physical therapy or now these stim units, either the full body suits um, or even like units that are specifically working that muscle. I know there's some minimal data, but I want to get your opinion on. Is that something that a lot of people should be doing because it says they're able to contract fibers that don't, wouldn't contract yeah. or you can target a specific group? What do you feel about that? Is that real? Is that something that's not no, proven I mean, yet? It's definitely not my area of expertise. Okay. Um, so I don't know a ton of, like, but I will say from my understanding of like the EMG research and the, the electrical magnetic stimulation research on a muscle level, there's some pretty good research that I don't know about the whole body suits, but when you apply it locally that it does help with muscle, some of these muscle activation patterns and that there is potential like when someone is going through rehab or the muscle firing activation pattern potentially has been changed due to injury or whatever that some of those devices can help with that. And there is some pretty good research behind them in a rehab protocol or other protocols, I would definitely say in regards to muscle firing patterns. As we switch over to how to boost performance, any opinion on the blood flow restriction and that? Oh, huge fan. I think blood flow restriction training is still, despite its growth recently, is still one of the more underutilized um, tools that any practitioner has access to. Um, and so we can go, there's definitely a few potential use cases. Um, so what do we see when someone completes blood flow restriction training? Blood flow restriction training, do you want me to go over quickly just yeah, to see what it does? Yeah. So essentially blood flow restriction training, we use it a lot in pro sports, is you apply a cuff to a limb. That can be your leg or an arm, and that cuff inflates. And by that cuff inflating, just like when you get your blood pressure, right, same idea, it kind of reduces the – or it definitely reduces the circulation or the blood flow to the muscle below the cuff. So, for example, if it's on the top of my quad and I tighten it, I create occlusion – it's going to reduce the blood flow to my quad, my calf, all that musculature. And so it cuts off the arterial blood flow about like 70 to 80%. So only about 20% of the blood flow gets there. And it completely cuts off the blood that actually returns to your heart. To your heart. So the venous blood flow return. And so what does that do? It causes pooling of blood to occur in the muscle. And so it causes a lot of like these hormones, like all of those, like those metabolic byproducts to accumulate in the muscle as well which is pretty similar response to when we get to like certain high intensity exercise or heavy lifting. So essentially what happens from that blood flow restriction training is because of the pooling of the blood and all those other metabolic responses that occur, it causes us to activate like these high threshold or fast twitch muscle fibers and it causes us to train them. But at the same time, because we're occluding blood flow, we don't have to utilize a lot of weight. So just to simplify it, what happens is blood flow occlusion training when we train with it, it allows us to use very light weights, but get a very similar response as heavy weight lifting. So you get increases in muscle strength, increases in muscle power, hypertrophy or muscle growth, which are, all, we know, typical adaptations from heavier lifting. But the beauty of it is it allows you to get those adaptations with very light load lifting. So when would that be imported if it's contraindicated for heavy lifting? So let's say an individual is coming back from injury or they just can't lift heavy weights comfortably right now. Blood flow restriction training will allow that individual to undergo very low loading, but still get a lot of the positive adaptations from um, lifting, like increases in muscle strength, power, and size, which we know are important for longevity. And then there's actually a lot of new research coming out about other potential use cases for blood flow restriction training, which I don't think most people are aware of, but I'm using with 
most of my athletes, especially my runners, it can aid in recovery. So it's called passive blood flow restriction training. So the protocol is you essentially just lay there, you inflate the cuffs on your legs, for example, you hold it for five minutes, so you get all the pooling of blood and metabolic products in the muscle, you take it off for two minutes, all the blood rushes back to your heart, essentially, and then you get fresh blood and fresh nutrients all into the musculature, the lower limbs. You repeat that cycle three times, and we have some pretty good research that that's going to increase recovery time. So essentially, you recover faster from hard workouts, which will allow you to repeat a hard workout again. Very important for athletics. Is that because of, is that because of the anti-inflammatory effects? Is that the fact of the new blood? Is it all of the above? All of the okay. above is from my understanding of the research. And then the last point is, typically, we've associated blood flow restriction training with like muscular adaptations related to strength, power, and muscle size. We're actually seeing it can have a lot of effects on aerobic or like cardiovascular aerobic adaptations at the muscle level, where by doing like aerobic intervals with blood flow restrictions, so let's say I put on the cuffs, inflate and ride the bike for like five minutes or 20 minutes, we see increases in like mitochondria density, increases in things like blood vessels in the muscle, like capillaries, which are important for aerobic. So it seems like blood flow restriction training, to summarize, allows an individual to complete less intense exercise, so reduce the overall load on the system, but still get a lot of those really good adaptations we would see from intense exercise, which again, can be really important if someone's contraindicated. It can also help with recovery as well. I think, like you said, I think blood flow restriction has a lot of potential. It's one of those things that a lot of people don't utilize or know. They're like, I'm just going to jump in the cold plunge and I'm good to go, which has some okay, some decent data, but not great. So we'll get into that in a little bit. So let's get into performance. So like I said, so somebody's coming to see you, they want to boost their, their, their split time, deadlift more. Yeah. We talked about the testing. We talked about how you're going to look at them initially. What are several steps that you're using with the athletes to help them boost their athletic performance? Yeah, so the way I like to look at this is a framework where we kind of do a gap analysis first. So if I'm working with a sprinter versus a marathoner, that's very different, right? So we look at what are the demands of your sport a sprinter, how fast can I run? Like how much power, how much force can I produce quickly? Marathoner, I need to be run at like a submaximal pace for how long, a very, very long time, how efficient I am. So the first step is we look at the goals of their event and then we look at where they are through the physiological testing and say, hey, we know what determines elite performance in your sport. We know your profile from the testing. Let's train to move up the capacities or whatever markers we found to get them closer to an elite in your sport because we have data on elites. So if we take a simple example of if someone comes to me and they say, I want to get stronger, like we talked about, then a lot of, or they want to build muscle, get stronger, get more powerful. A lot of that's going to be related to lifting. So if we want to get stronger, for example, or a weekend warrior, like we know the best way to get stronger is to lift heavy weights. That's the best way to get stronger. Like you want to get faster. We want a combination of heavy weights, but also things like spritzing or explosive lifting, which is where you lift a lighter load very fast. So a lot of this comes down to like law specificity, as we call it. If you want to get better at something, you have to work in the weight room in a way that's going to overload that quality or mimic it. Okay. And then, so the other part of that always comes down to, okay, I'm lifting heavy. How many times a week? Yeah. Which I get, I've seen different opinions on now. And, and then also, do I need to train to failure? Do I need to train near, quote, I see now different terms like near failure. What? So what, what are the rules around what you're talking about? Yeah, no, it's a great point. I hate always to say it, but it depends, which I think comes up a lot okay. in exercise physiology, but I can give some baseline rules. Um, so we see different adaptations based on the way you lift, which I think is like as we're talking about right now. Um, so let's say, as I just said, my goal is to get as strong as possible you have to lift heavy. So heavy weight, and you don't actually need to go to failure. You can stay, we call it reps in reserve or like away from failure. So let's say if my goal is to get as strong as possible, I would actually probably stay away from failure because it's going to create less fatigue and allow me to do more heavy lifting. So I would typically program like two or three reps in reserve. So essentially what that means is you're going to lift heavy 80% or higher of whatever your maximum capacity is for that lift. So let's say example, just to make it easy, I can lift 100 pounds on a deadlift. I would have to lift 80 pounds or higher to get to that 80th percent mark. And I would probably stop at a point where I could still complete two or three more reps safely in that set. And then if my goal is, but this is where something is different. If your goal is to build muscle, we know you need to get close to failure essentially. So muscle hypertrophy, the main mechanism to increasing muscle size 
is mechanical tension and we cause tension on the muscle by going very close to failure. So if your goal is to increase muscle size, I would actually live very close to failure in most of the exercises you're doing. If your goal is to increase muscle strength or power, I would stay a few reps away from failure and lift heavy. But for muscle hypertrophy, we see from the research now, the goal to increase muscle size, for example, you can actually get muscle hypertrophy from lifting in a rep range from five reps all the way to like 25 or 30 reps. But the main factor is you're going close to failure in each of those sets. And then a couple times a week. Exactly. I would say two to three times. If you really, depends on how much you're trying to maximize it. But for most of the population, I would say two to three times a week lifting is going to be good. And is there data that shows one way or the other in terms of, again, everybody has their own, every athlete, especially every person who lifts heavy has their own opinion on it in terms of doing different body part days, doing full body. Is there anything that shows that one is better than the others or kind of more individualized? I think it's going to be individualized. It depends. Again, I've, you've seen a lot of really famous, for example, bodybuilders or strength athletes who have taken upon different systems um, to get strong or to get muscle size. But um, I would say it definitely depends. And the main factor is, again, like if the goal is to build muscle size, going close to failure anytime you work out. And if the goal is to build muscle strength, lifting heavy. And if the other goal is muscle strength, you do want to make sure you go into that workout or that session relatively fresh because a key adaptation of getting stronger is how much of the muscle I can activate. And to activate a lot of the muscle, you don't want to be fatigued. And then we talked about creatine versus smid. Just go into yeah. it now. So, again, that of any su- every supplement that has probably the most data behind it of anything at this yeah. point to, for muscle and for brain and a lot of other things. So how do you recommend – your athletes do creatine, do you load your page, do you load your clients, yeah. is it still the five and you're fine? How do you view that? Yeah, I, if someone wants to load, they can load. It's gonna, I guess first, I'm sure you've talked about it before, but we should talk about like the mechanisms of creatine. So one of the main energy sources for our muscle is phosphocreatine, which is stored in the muscle itself. We talked about carbs and fats earlier, but the difference is phosphocreatine, that energy source is the preferred energy source for extremely explosive movements. So let's say I sprint as fast as I can for five to 10 seconds. I'm going to mostly be utilizing creatine, phosphocreatine in the muscle for that event. And creatine is important because it helps top off those phosphocreatine stores. So it essentially allows your muscle to have a larger energy supply of phosphocreatine. So you can produce more of those intense actions. And so we know that a loading phase of creatine is going to essentially put more creatine in your muscle quicker for like the first week or so. But for me, most individuals I work with, I typically just say, if you want to do a loading phase to top off your creatine stores in the muscle to get there within a week, you can do it. So that's like whatever, 10, 15, 20 grams, some people even do. But if not, if you just want to start with five grams per day, we see that around after a month, even that you're typically your creatine stores are topped off and you won't get any additional benefit after that from loading. So I typically recommend that they just do five grams a day. But if they want to load, they can. I mean, the, 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 the data on both, as you said, and again, this should be anybody from who's 17 years old to 80 years old, because there's a bunch of studies coming out in terms of the benefit for creatine and women, especially older women who are losing muscle mass yeah. a little bit more than men. So this applies to almost everybody that creatine should almost be in the water at this point. Exactly. Uh, because it's something has very no side effects. There's a lot of those side of the, there's a lot of myths that it causes you to gain weight. It doesn't cause you to gain weight. If it no. does, it's it's most likely it's muscle water. or right. water. Yeah, yeah. Okay. it's muscle weight or water weight, and we actually see it's transient. That like it may actually like offset after like a month or two. Yeah, so it's just yeah. Don't let the myths pull you down. Get yourself on the creatine. Yeah. So, what else do you recommend for your athletes who are trying to maximize performance besides creatine? Is there yeah. anything, any other two or three cool tidbits that you can recommend to people out there? I mean, first of all, I just want to touch on creatine for one more second because, oh. as you and I both know, it's such a great supplement. I think, like, so let's just talk quickly. Like, as you already spoken about, creatine is going to increase your muscle strength, muscle size, muscle power. Those are really important metrics of longevity. It's going to increase your brain health, but we actually have some interesting evidence now that it's going to actually help potentially endurance athletes as well. can allow you to accumulate more high-volume endurance training, high-intensity endurance training. That increase in volume or increased intensity of endurance training can help with markers like VO2 max, conditioning. There's potentially some research it can actually help with like heat adaptations. It can also help put more glycogen in the muscle, store more glycogen in the muscle. Are we important adaptations for endurance athletes? So I just want to say that and even longevity. The creatine isn't just limited 
isn't limited in its benefits to just the muscle level. It can have a lot of potential impact as we talked about the brain or even like some of these more metabolic or aerobic related adaptations. But in terms of other supplements, I potentially recommend to an athlete. Or it could be technology, like hyperbaric, anything in yeah. that category. Yeah, I mean, creatine is definitely probably the big one I recommend to all my athletes. Um, caffeine, I'm a fan of. I definitely think caffeine is pretty well studied from a performance enhancement standpoint. Uh, we talked about nitrates already for endurance athletes. There's good research behind that. Other things that we do, the blood flow restriction training, and then I would say- They do that at home. Can can somebody get like an at-home unit like Hatsu and do this stuff, or they need somebody applying the unit I have an them? at-home unit, so you can get at-home units now. They even make shorts now that just have like straps in them that have been validated, which is a little iffy, but- I'm, just, I'm trying to visualize that, yeah. but okay. No, I mean- It must I, work. Yeah. Okay. Anyone can get at-home units now. And then um, those are my main ones. And then again, as we talked about earlier, you kind of just have to do the work. My two biggest ones, which- People don't always want to hear, but if we're talking about just overall recovery and adaptation or nutrition and sleep, I would say um, it's stress management. <laughs> but we've people talked don't want about to that, that a lot in the pocket. It's it's now it's changed in the yeah. sense that again, because people are now looking at their aura rings and they want to. That again, I think it's a competitive nature, especially in Manhattan. Oh, I want my sleep score to be really good. My my HR reverability is bad. I got to work on. It. So I think it's changing a little bit, but still. People are trying to burn the candle at all the ends. No, yeah. It's probably even more important than the exercise. I mean, the exercise is really important, but it's going to be very hard to adapt to exercise if your nutrition and sleep are dialed in. Exercise is great, but yeah, you need the other two pieces and you're not going to get the benefits unless you're doing the other two. Um, So you mentioned two other things I want to get into. So in terms of protein intake, what do you recommend to your clients? Do you have, do you have different recommendations, male, female? Or is it- I think it's probably like similar to what you've spoken about historically, like higher than what's typically recommended, I would say. What do you typically recommend? I, I, I tend to do, again, everybody's a little different. I, the, my two main things I try to point out that people don't know, it can't be spread out over five meals. You want to at least get, th- what, 30 to 50 grams of protein, especially post-workout, even though I think that the yeah. rich now doesn't matter as much anymore. Yeah. And then making sure that it's a high leucine yep, protein. Yeah, high leucine. I tell patients three grams. I'll let you, yep, you're the no, expert. Very, very similar. Um, and then you want to get at least, I tell you, one mig per kit. Exactly. And then another piece, I'll, get, I'll let you give your spiel on it. You're, the expert is you want to work out your intake should be close to where you want to get to either higher or lower. Like if you want to be pulled on 10 pounds of muscle, you want to shoot for that, take the protein for that goal. Or if you want to lose 10 pounds, exactly. you don't want, it's not I'm 185 now I and treat that. You want to ha- understand what your goals are and try to supplement for those goals. At least that's what I've been taught. But again, no, I think I'm very similar. It sounds like we've both been influenced by Don Lehman's work as well. Everybody. I think that's yeah. Good. Yeah, a given. So that. Don Lehman, I would say his research on protein intake, obviously like he influenced people like, um, um, Gabrielle Lyon and some exactly. of these other big mm-hmm. ones, um, who have been in the space now, nutrition. Oh man. How am I forgetting his name though? Um, He's been on a tier a few times, and he women, you know, uh, Galpin, Andy Galpin, Andy Galpin, but the the, the big oh, Lane Lane Ornan, obviously. Like, yeah. So he's referenced his work as well too. So are very similar, I would say. Yeah, the gram per kilogram, making sure you're getting enough protein more than we typically recommended for the FDA or whatever the recommending governing body is. And then I think you brought up a key point, which people know two key points, which I think people don't always recognize the leucine content. And related to spreading the meals out to three to five, I think a lot of people are just like, oh, I just eat one big meal of protein a day. And we see that that's not going to be helpful because of that leucine related thing. We talk about like the mTOR signaling pathway, and that's just essentially the pathway that's going to help build muscle just to sum it down and make it really simple. And we know that two ways to maximize that pathway are through spreading the protein out throughout the day, the three, three, three to five meals or the three meals, however you want to do it. And then also to make sure we have a high leucine content is going to be a driver of that pathway. And they should have, usually it's, it's- from what I would, again, I'll let you defer to you, is do they need 30 grams? Do most people need 30 grams to stimulate muscle? Okay, there we go. That's yeah, it. to, it's that to drive that leucine, to drive that mTOR, they all go together. We essentially need a, a certain protein mm-hmm. amount in each meal, and it seems like that 30, at least getting that 30 grams is going to be important. You cannot do a podcast in aging without mentioning mTOR at least once. But yeah, I was going to say, we, we did it. We there checked we it off. Check there it off. Go. There you go. Not, it's a really interesting pathway. I'm not going to pretend like I understand it, but no. it's interesting. That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother yeah. podcast for another day. With uh, But so we talked about performance. I want to bring something because like you kind of hinted at it. So if somebody how, – how does training differ – if you are a sprint or a power athlete, you're an offensive lineman versus I want to go run 
the a, a marathon like the guy who just ran the two minute that's two minute, the two hour two marathon. Hour marathon yeah so how does that how's training differ because obviously you're not doing the same thing yeah and i think it all goes down to some of the points you mentioned earlier which not every exercise stimulus is created equal and different forms of exercise cause different adaptations whether i'm interested in more like that vo2 max or that muscle strength and power so let's go back to example of those two extremes i think is a really good one if i have an athlete who is an offensive lineman is a good example. So what are the main demands of an offensive lineman in football or someone who has to be really strong? They have to be really strong, really powerful, and have a lot of muscle. So for them, we're going to focus mostly on stuff in the weight room. And what that's going to mean is they're going to lift heavy, they're going to lift for power, and they're going to lift to put on muscle size because that's what the demands of their sport are. But let's say on the other end, I have someone who's a marathon runner and their goal is to run a two-hour marathon they're probably not going to do a lot of the stuff that puts on a lot of muscle size because that can actually hurt how efficient of a runner they are. So we're going to spend more time doing things related to running. And that's going to be things like such as that VO2 max stimulus we talked about earlier, a lot of long, easy zone two runs to build up that aerobic base, which creates a lot of those mitochondria, those adaptations that are really important for their sport. So they're going to spend less time in the weight room and more time doing things like conditioning or metabolic interventions, where like the football player or the sprinter is going to do more things related to overall strength and power which is mostly lifting. Yeah, that explains it. So we kind of overlapped everything we do. I wanted to kind of kind of get near the end with this one is a lot of uh, trainers now that go on the podcast talking about biomarkers, 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 biomarkers. So besides the VO2 max, are you, since you, with pro athletes, are you, how important the VO, are the biomarkers to you? Are you getting those labs done? A lot of them are- Extremely. And which ones are you, do you find most important, most valuable? Yeah, I think it depends on the sport and the individual, but- I would say the blood biomarkers are extremely important to me um, in a very similar sense to why sleep and nutrition is important. If someone's biomarkers or like blood biochemistry is off, it's going to be very hard to adapt to exercise, as I'm sure you, you could probably speak to that more than I could. And then there's certain ones that I look for, especially depending on the range of athletes, but I'll just give you... Um, a few. Vitamin D is a big one. We know vitamin D is very important for, for like things like bone health and when we adapt to exercise, like increasing bone uh, stimulus, secreting muscle mass. Very important for adaptation. I look at things like hemoglobin, especially for the endurance athletes. We want baseline hemoglobin levels to understand. Obviously, hemoglobin is really important. Um, for those athletes, too, I look at things like iron and ferritin levels because that's going to be, again, related to hemoglobin, all those red blood cell count. I look at things like overall red blood cell count. Total blood cells, because again, a key determinant of like exercise performance and endurance space or just overall longevity, things like red blood cell count and iron levels are going to be really important for that as well, ferritin. Those are all things that I take into account. Um, I look at some of the, again, I'm not a doctor, so it's definitely not my expertise to interpret these things, but as you can speak to like thyroid markers are important for overall metabolic health, which is going to influence some of the things we do from an exercise standpoint if they can adapt to them. Um, I mean, those are definitely some of the main ones that I've looked at historically. And what what do you like? What, in your opinion, what have you found? Well, well, the one I want to ask you about is the one is that I mean, yeah, we always I told you, you mentioned thyroid. I always look at testosterone, even though it's not an A to B yeah, link to. You, you could have a testosterone of five hundred and a testosterone yeah. eight hundred and still have the same performance. You just want to have no, at least normal. And I tend to I like to look at the free testosterone. Ex what is your What is your thoughts about that? Yeah, I'd rather have free. Exactly. I mean, in terms of because you could. It, I could tell people you can have a million dollars in a locked bank vault, but if you have no access to it, it's, it's yeah, good it's a to good you. Metaphor. Um, I have a lot. I love the cheesy metaphors. It works. That's um, a good one. But is there data? Because I get asked all the time. I don't know if I have a good answer. Is is growth hormone IGF one? Is there a great link between performance? They're like, I want to do this because it's going to boost my growth hormone. And there's again, there's plus the minus of growth hormone in general, which is a whole other conversation in terms of cancer risk and mTOR yeah. and other and, and longevity. But in terms, has there been any good studies showing that if I have a higher growth hormone level, my performance? Then you may build more muscle short term, but is there any link to performance? I don't think the data exists. I don't know what you've seen. I haven't I seen any. Asking. You know you know this stuff better than me. No, I don't know if that data exists is what I'll say. So I won't have a definite answer. I think the data definitely does exist that if you have very low free testosterone or low testosterone levels, it's going to make it, obviously, we know energy levels. It's going to make it very hard to build muscle. So again, that is another key biomarker. I look at testosterone also cortisol levels, like the ratio between those two. And we just want to make someone has enough high levels of free of free testosterone if the goal is to build muscle. So again, like when someone comes to me, I look at that, especially if the goal is hypertrophy, overall muscle size and power. In terms of IGF or like the, the insulin -like growth factor or the different growth hormones that come into play, even in regards... It's really tough, like even the research about how important that one, the growth hormone stuff, is in building muscle. 
we see it's actually pretty if iffy. We know that like hormones like transiently after you lift heavy and stuff like growth hormone increases, like the insulin like growth factor increases, the IGF-1. But in regards to how important that is for overall muscle growth, it definitely plays a small role. But most of the research coming out now is showing that that mechanical tension, which leads to activation of that mTOR pathway and some of these hormones do play a role in that, like is going to be the most important factor. So to be honest, I don't know. <laughs> you knew everything else. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know that one. <laughs> so as we wind down a little bit, so what haven't we covered? So I'm an athlete. I'm listening to this. What should I? What are one or two things that we haven't talked about? Should people be aware of something they never probably never maybe never thought about in terms of athletic performance and recovery? What what which we hit on here? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of recovery, we hit on the big ones. You can't skip the most important steps, which are things like sleep, nutrition. There is some new like biohacking, if you were, technology that has some decent research behind it. Blood flow restriction um, would be my main one. Some of the other ones, like, yeah, some of the electrical stim has some decent research behind it. If you're an athlete in regards to performance, um, I think my main thing that I've seen is that um, you need to be individualized based on who you are and the demands of your sport. I've seen a lot of issues in regards to like people are giving athletes a one size fits all program. And as we've spoken about through all this podcast, like individuals are complex and sport, there's a lot of different factors that go into different sports. So if you are going to train for a sport, make sure you go somewhere that understands who you are as an individual and what the demands of your sport for to give you an individualized training program. That is the pro- for anything in terms of health right now, make sure if they're just giving you a cookie cutter program, yeah. be it an online trainer, if you can't see I'm doing air quotes, yeah, or online coach, if it's just okay, you and your sister and your friend are all yeah. doing the same program, run far away as fast yeah. as you can. And also, and you all shouldn't have the same goals. What, what your friend is able to do is not maybe not be what you able to do, and it doesn't matter. That's fine as long as you again you have these successful numbers and you look good and you feel good and you're, everything's kind of working together. It's fine. It's not like I get people now. Oh, well, so and so lost this much weight or this, exactly. or he put on. He's now his BMI, his uh, DEXA scan is now this. It's like okay, th- that may not. We'd love to help you get there, but it yeah. you, it just may not be possible. I think yeah, you can speak to this to me too. We both appreciate like physiology and how many factors go into that so everyone's different we're all unique so that's why like one program may work for an individual but not work for another and for me that's where like the testing and the diagnostics offer so much value because we can not only individualize what you're doing but then again retest to make sure you're getting better and it maybe it's not the right plan for you and we have to switch a few things up i think the last point i want to make that you and i've talked about is that like health and performance aren't always the same thing and i think that's um a misnomer that some of these athletes who i help like they're training at such a high volume, such a high intensity all the time to get ready for the sport that that actually causes underlying physiological changes that may not be healthy. So optimizing for health versus performance, that's sometimes not the same thing is another thing I'll say. No, yeah, overtraining. I mean, that, this is a, again, I, I, I've seen things like Brad Schoenfeld, other people who say you can't over, there's, people, there's so many different opinions if you can overtrain and not, there are some now potentially some lab alterations, yeah. but that's still a huge debate. I don't know if it'll be settled anytime soon but yeah you have to track the markers and see how it works individually so i really appreciate you coming on um the life optimized podcast i recommend that you definitely check out jonah his social media stuff on tiktok and yeah. instagram are great so tell everybody about wh- wh- what you're having setting up and where they can find information more about you yeah i'm actually definitely from a social media standpoint most activated most active on instagram i post a lot of videos about quick tips mostly related to endurance strength performance for athletes but also our health and that instagram account is jonah j-o-n-a-h underscore jar performance um that's my instagram handle and then there's a link to my website there but my website is the run science initiative and you can contact me through there as well via email and find out more a little bit about my services, my offerings here in New York City. And yeah, I would say that's the best way to contact me. Do you work with patients remotely? Is everybody has been? Yeah, no, I'm so I've have actually started due to high demand working with patients remotely. And I in my training, in my um, testing and my monitoring of individuals I work with, it's pretty much all wearable technology based, a lot of the training. Um, and also like machine learning based where we combine all those different technologies, their information streams into one platform because that way we get a holistic view of the athlete as we talked about earlier, understand like the different training they're doing and how they're responding. And so a lot of that we can send the wearable technology to you is what I do. You can do the testing in the comfort of your own home and then we could go from a program from a remote standpoint as well. Let me get that. You brought that up really quickly. So <laughs> yeah. real, real quick, what is there one wearable you find that works for most athletes that gives you the most data or then the, or both? 
think it depends. Let me ask you that question. What about you? What wearable have you had the most success with? Well, to me, it's two. And okay. It's, I mean, right now, I think is the O-ring is still, to me, the best for a lot of different reasons. Agreed. And then something simple I love but nobody can wear is a polar, like a Polar H10 strap. Well, you get great data when you're working out, but nobody can tolerate it wearing it all day. So it's, it only helps so much. That, that's something we look at heart rate. You can get heart. Some device now can give you a heart rate variability to yeah. it. So I think there's a, again, so there's nothing perfect yet. I think it's coming with these patches that are going to come out in the next couple of years. Um, they're going to tell you anything from sweat to whatever. But I think we're not, we're close, but we're not there yet. So I just yeah. wanted to get your opinion because you're dealing with, again, with all these different aspects. No, so you're, yeah. you're tracking them. No, all the time. Yeah, it depends um, on the athlete and their goals. Like if they're an endurance athlete, a strength, power, speed athlete, sprinter. Um, just a quick synopsis of the wearable technology I do send to them. Aura Ring, of course. A lot of them wear heart rate straps during their training. A lot of them now I send them like um, accelerometers or GPS devices that are actually worn on their shoes. So that way it monitors their run. They get all the things like ground contact time, step, frequency during their running. If they're a biker, we send them power meters to get like all their power outputs on a bike. Um, again, like some people, I send like camera-based systems that record them sprinting. We do analysis on their sprinting. I want to be your client. <laughs> exactly. So it depends on the individual and what they need. But, and then we just like put all that information together just to understand how they're responding to the training and what the training is. But I think it depends, but I do a lot of sweat testing, the patches, all that, but I agree with you, your main point, which is as we get into the future, the wearable technology is improving. These sensors are improving like crazy. Some of the inputs, the validity of the data, and the way we can analyze it. So I think soon we will get some sensors that will really change the way we can offer remote programming. Exactly. So now we're going to do the, the firm ending here. So okay. Jonah, thanks for coming on. Definitely <laughs> check him out. His social content's great. If you have a chance to work with him, no matter what level you are, definitely do it. So thanks for coming and joining us on the Life Optimized Podcast. We, we help you optimize your life, health, mind, and business. And we'll see you guys soon. Later. Yeah, appreciate it. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a biohacker, or an athlete, if you're ready to take the next steps to optimize your life, visit drpaulvin.com. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-P-A-U-L-V-I-N.com. com.